And let's see. So we started out talking about the new covenant between when Brian kind of talked about uh, promises versus performance and the difference between that and the new covenant. Did I get that right? Okay, I'm, I'm looking to you for affirmation at this point. Okay, thanks. And uh, then we talked about Ben and I kind of tag team the same thing, incidentally, about uh, Mount Sinai, about my, Mount Sinai and, uh, and Jerusalem, Mount Zion. So we kind of both hit that. I think you hit it out of Galatians, did you not? And then I talked about it out of Hebrews chapter whatever, 12, I think it was. Um, and today I want to talk, and Justin, what did you talk about last week? I was out. I was in children's, what's that? Just a new covenant. Well, there we go. So Justin just pretty much answered all our questions on the new covenant while I was in children's church. So I probably should have listened to that message, but uh, it got interfered. I was going to listen to Justin's sermon, but then TikTok got in the way and I never did. So I've seen uh, plenty of three-minute videos about drills and saws and a couple about paint, and one about this bird getting electrocuted. So it was pretty good. It was a good week on TikTok for me, but uh, <laughs> overall. Uh, but today I want us to talk about this, about the idea of atonement versus uh, forgiveness out of Hebrews chapter number 9. We could say the difference between covering of sin and the removal of sin. Uh, as here in this chapter, the writer of Hebrews talks about the difference between the heavenly or the kind of the comparison, I guess I should say, of the heavenly sanctuary and the earthly sanctuary and what it is that Jesus did uh, in order to take away sin. So we're going to be talking about that through the entire entirety of Hebrews 9, though we're not going to look at every single verse. We're going to kind of hit the high points if you'll allow me to do that. So Hebrews chapter number 9, and I'm going to read a couple of verses uh, starting down in verse number 11. And we're going to kind of go through this, not necessarily, like I said, in verse by verse, but uh, hopefully systematically enough to where we uh, we gain something from it. So Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse number 11, it said, But Christ came as high priest of good things to come with the greater and more excellent tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own... And I like how it says that. I, like, I love how it emphasizes his own blood. It might seem something trivial, but those are the things that stick in my brain. Uh, he didn't just come with blood. That's what the Old Testament priest did. He came with random blood of goats and bulls, but Christ with his own blood, he entered into the most holy place, and as uh, it was said during the worship time, once for all, and that's going to be the name of the message this morning is once for all, once for all having obtained eternal redemption, and the implication of that phrase is for us. Uh, you look back in your, your ye old King James Version, and you will see where it says for us right there. And so the, uh, this morning I want to talk about what it means to have sin forgiven in the new covenant once and for all. So uh, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get into it. All right, Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, the forgiveness that we enjoy, uh, not based on any of our own merits, any of our own works, uh, as we've already stated multiple times today. Uh, but based on the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so we stand before you today completely helpless without you having done what you did for us all those years ago on the cross and what you continue to do for us in our lives, in us and through us now. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so i got a test for you. It's a history test, and I hope you're ready for it. So you're going to take it whether you're ready or not. I'm going to give you a couple of one-line phrases and I want you to tell me who said them, all right? Number one, give me liberty or give me death. Who said that? Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry. That's absolutely right. 
the other one is, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Who said that? JF, that's right. Mm -hmm. And here's one that that great theologian of the late 19th century that uh, I was so well acquainted with in my whole high school years, who was not only a fashion icon with his eyeglasses, his haircut, and his baggy pants, but he said the phrase that infected an entire generation, you can't touch this. <laughs> MC Hammer, yes. So there's a, you know, it is, isn't it interesting? I have not heard that song in probably 10 years. I could sing it for you right now, flawlessly. And I never even liked it when it came out, but for some reason, no. But for some reason... <laughs> For all the words to it are in my head. These are, but you knew who it was, didn't you? You hear the one line and you know what it is. You know, God is not into pithy one-liners, so I don't want to reduce what the one line that I'm about to talk that made a huge difference. But when Jesus was on the cross, he made a statement. He made one statement as he cried out, the New Testament says. And he says just those very simple words that come over in English in very basic ways. Um, after all the years that I spent reading the New Testament from the time I was probably 19 or 20 up till the time I was about 34, uh, the impact of those words kind of went over my head a little bit. They sounded good, you know, and I embraced them for what I thought it meant. But when Jesus said it was finished, that's where things changed. You know, there, there was a, a, a form of operation that God had put into place for one reason, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But when Jesus said, it is finished, everything changed. Everything changed. I mean, even the physical makeup around the death of Jesus, things changed, right? We know the story, the temple was torn, the, excuse me, not the temple, but the veil was torn in two from, the Bible makes it very important distinction from the top to the bottom, Right? Uh, in Matthew, he tells us that the earth shook and that the graves were open and some of the saints stood up and walked around. Now, that is a very deep theological mystery that I'm not certain about, but fortunately you have a pastor that knows all those answers. <laughs> and Justin told me before the sermon that if you'll come up to him after church and ask him the difficult questions, he, he will... Yeah. <laughs> Message you on Facebook, huh? There's always a way out, always a way out. But he'll answer those for you. He'll also answer that question why Moses ground up the calf and put it in the water and made everybody drink it. He knows the, and he knows the application to help you live a better Christian life from both of those questions. <laughs> so when we go through this in Hebrews chapter 9, this is kind of what I want us to grasp this morning by the grace of God. And it's that uh, we need to accept the fact that Jesus' blood sacrifice on the cross has affected our sins now in that he finished the work for them on our behalf. We like to really, you know, it's like a lot of people, and you've probably heard the statement before, they'll be like, well, I understand that Jesus forgave my sins when I came to Christ, but what about my future sins? And I can't remember if it was Andrew Farley or Steve McVeigh who said it. It doesn't really matter. It's, it makes sense. Uh, but they said, unless you're over 2,000 years old, all your sins were in the future when Jesus died for them. <laughs> And it seems like a silly notion to not consider, but when you really stop and you look at it, it makes complete sense, doesn't it? And it just goes to show all of us how, you know, individualistic we are when we think about our sins. We think that we're, you know, it's like what Steve Eden said. He said, if you're the center of your universe, your universe is off-center. 
And that's the way that we see things. We see ourselves. And I'm, I mean, I'm not telling you that you do. I'm saying we as in I'm lumping myself in there with that. Just ask my wife. We see ourselves as the center of the universe. So even our theology comes from how we feel and we think about ourselves a lot of the times. So God decided to have this very novel idea. He wrote these things called the Scriptures. And within those scriptures that the Spirit of God moved on holy men of God as they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they wrote things down and helped us understand that we aren't the center of everything that was accomplished. Christ is the center of everything that was accomplished, and he, he has brought us into that. So in Hebrews chapter 9, God, you know, and remember when you read the book of Hebrews, as I've said before, you have to read it with a little yarmulke on your head because it's written kind of towards Jewish people. Uh, as non-Jewish people, some of the stuff in there is foreign to us. I remember before I came to really, the Lord really gave me the understanding of what was happening at the atonement. I dreaded the book of Hebrews to an extent. I really did. Uh, first off, I didn't understand it. And like any man, if I don't understand it, I go straight to crow mag mode and I just throw it out. You know, I don't want to deal with it. You know, hit it with a hammer. If I can't fix it with a hammer, I'm done with it. Uh, if I can't figure it out, I don't even want to look at it. That's why men don't read instructions. All right. So the next time your husband or whatever, your sons, they go to put some, just let them do it and fail, okay? And just leave them alone. They'll figure it out. If you have extra pieces, you can use it on another project. And so because I couldn't quite figure it out, if I can use that terminology, I stayed away from it. Plus, I mean, Hebrews chapter 12 kind of freaked me out a little bit. Didn't quite understand what was going on in Hebrews chapter number 13. I kind of got what was going on in Hebrews chapter 9, but not to an extent. And in Hebrews 9, he uses, and he uses a very, uh, maybe a foreign concept to help us understand what it is to have our sins completely forgiven. And it's something that isn't talked about a lot today in, in many churches across the board. And I'm very careful to use, when I use those statements to make, not make it sound like, well, here at Pure Grace, we got it nailed. All you other guys are still stumbling around in the dark. That's not what I mean by it. What I mean by it is in Hebrews chapter number 9, the main subject matter that he speaks of here is blood. And nobody likes talking about blood. It's gross. Now, I, I mean, it is. I enjoy hunting. I remember the first time I shot a deer. Uh, matter of fact, let me back that up. I remember the first time I shot an elk. If you have ever gutted an elk, let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of guts in an elk, all right? A whole lot. And if you're not willing to get, like, this far inside of it up to here, uh, you're not going to get it. In blood, it smells. It coagulates. You say, why are you talking about all this? Because Hebrews chapter 9 talks about blood. And how it relates to your forgiveness and my forgiveness. You know, growing up in a certain denomination, it, now when I think back on it, it amazes me how much weight we put on our words and our prayers to maintain or enter into our relationship with God. It amazes me how much weight we put on saying just the right things. I can remember after I became a, a Christian when I was 19 years old, I was by myself, so no one was really around me. Ben had actually witnessed to me. He tricked me into us come over, and I can't remember how he tricked me. It may have been money or food. I can't remember. Uh, but he uh, came over to his house, and he witnessed to me, and the ball got rolling there, and I was by myself. And while I was saved, I remember thinking in my mind and in my heart, I need Christ. That's all I thought. And when I thought that, I said it. Nobody was around. Nobody told me to pray a prayer. I didn't get confused about words and forgiveness until I started going to church. That's where I got confused. Well, I was under the impression that I didn't pray the sinner's prayer just right. 
So after about six months of being in church, I went home one Sunday evening after being an author athlete for that whole time. And I went home and I got on my knees right there in my bedroom and I prayed the most theologically accurate sinner's prayer you have ever heard in your life. All right? You couldn't be, you know, I think I even prayed in Greek. I'm not sure, but I think I did. I mean, I prayed all the words, all right, you know, and said it just in the right order, you know. Now knowing, knowing what I know now by the grace of God, I know I was saved in that moment sitting at that park off Spring Hill Avenue and I thought in my, my heart, I need Christ, you know, and it prompted my mouth to speak at that point because my heart was, my mouth was matching up with my heart in that moment. But as you hang around, if you hang around Christianity too long, you're going to find yourself, you know, lost like a ball in high weeds when it comes to this idea of the words that you say and the blood that Christ shed when it comes to having full atonement for sin. Um. So let's just go through this. I I can go on and on and just throw my random thoughts out there. I wrote them down on purpose so you didn't get caught in the the cavern that is the disorganized jumble of my thoughts. So hopefully we can keep things together. All right, so let's talk about this idea of Christ dying for your sins, shedding blood once for all. Now, in verses 1 through 14, we're not going to read them all, relax, all right? But in verses 1 through 14, we see this overarching theme about Christ's sacrifice. It was a one-time sacrifice for sin. A one time, once, just one. Now, I'm going to make a crazy statement later. It might freak you out, so hang on about this one, all right? So just hold on. Now, verses 1 through 14, look at verse number 1. He says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and earthly sanctuary, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, which was the lamp stand, there was all this holy furniture. And verse 3, and behind the second veil was called the holiest of all, or the holy of holies. And then he goes on to describe that once a year, the high priest himself would take the blood of an innocent lamb, and he'd go into the holy place, and he would make atonement upon the mercy seat for the sins of the people. And this was something that was repeated over and over and over and over and over again. And not just by one high priest, by multiple high priests in a tribe from Jerusalem, and not even from just that tribe, but a certain set of people in that tribe that could do such a thing. So this was how intense it was for a Jewish individual, a Hebrew individual, to go through this process of having their sins forgiven. And get this now, and write it down in the back of your mind, every year... Every year, I want you to stop right now and I want you to rewind back through 2020 and ask yourself this, how many sins do you think you committed in 2020? All right, how many many did you commit last week? Just imagine having to carry that load all the way around for one year. And you know what you do? You get your divine stimulus package and wipes it out, Right? And then you walk out of the temple, you walk out of the tabernacle, you go back on the street, and somebody, you're a Hebrew man, you got, you're going back home, and somebody cuts you off on their donkey on the path. And then all of a sudden, the words fly into your mind, and boom, a little debt's added, and a little more debt. And you know what's so amazing about that? Is that when we look at the intrinsic holy nature of God, the accumulation of individual sin by the person is not just simply based on their actions. It's based on who they are outside of Christ. I remember uh, one time I was walk. We I used to work at a, a post office, and it was in this old building. It was built in like eighteen, like fifty eight or something. It was ridiculously old. I mean, it was a super old building. It had like you could tell the stones 
that the building were made out of. Somebody like carved them with a hammer and a chisel. I mean, it was that old. And it was really cool looking. And down in the basement, they had remodeled it a multitude of times. And down in the basement, it hadn't been used in probably 30 years. And it smelled so musty. I mean, it was probably one of the most rank places I'd ever been. And at one part, there was this old sink with like a rusty knife in it and chains hanging in it. I took a picture of it, and I'm like, I, I work at the post office slash a torture chamber, and, which is still true. And, uh, so I remember being down there thinking to myself, this is terrible. Because you look at the outside of this building, and you're like, man, this building's great. You walk in the lobby, it's like, this is a cool-looking lobby, you know, but right below the surface is all this putridness that nobody really knew about unless you worked there. And the human heart's like that. And under the old covenant, that's what the law was designed for, to show them that the outside of what they were carrying around could not take care of the, what was going on the inside. I mean, we think about when God interacts with man, as we, we sang about today and everything that he's done, we can't appreciate it like we did this morning unless we understand the position that he found us in. You can't. You just can't do it. And when we see that this priest is entering and he's offering this sacrifice for sin, understand it's not because they just accidentally slipped up and cursed one day. It was because the very makeup of those human beings was utterly corrupted. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. And so every year, they sacrificed it. And over and over, look at verse number 9. Let me get, me, let me get my mind back on thought, uh, track here. Verse number 9, it says, It was symbolic for the, uh, for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices were offered, as we talked about. And notice what he says about this old covenant system, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience. Boy, that is a terrible way to have to live. You know why I know it's a terrible way to have to live? Because I used to live that way. It's awful living that way. I can remember the, the, the weight of a legalistic system placed on you takes everything that is a celebration of your freedom and turns it into a drudgery. It turns it into this torturous event to where you just flagellate yourself on the inside over what you know to be true about yourself apart from the gospel. Though you were told the gospel is your remedy, then they turn around and tell you that you're the remedy in order to get yourself into the gospel. And it's this nasty cycle that you just stay on. I can remember there would be times I would go into, and when I walked into our church and I saw there was communion set up, my heart just dropped. Dropped. I was terrified of taking communion. Because it had been drilled in my head that God was just looking for a sin in my life to take me out over. I remember there were many times that I would put the bread in my mouth and I would drink the grape juice or we didn't use wine, and we didn't use a common cup, thank God. And uh, I would put that, the elements in my mouth and just hold them there, having to talk myself into taking them because I was so scared that God was going to take my life. Now, I wish I was exaggerating, but I'm not. Why? Because my conscience had been defiled. I had a Jiminy Cricket religion is what I had. To where I let my conscience be my God rather than letting the gospel be my provision. And so I allowed my internal... See, a lot of the times when we live by our conscience, what we have to understand is this. Is your conscience is not bad. But you and I don't have the luxury of setting our consciences. God does that. 
when you live by your conscience, you might have it set way too high. And you might be inflicting upon yourself things that don't even matter. You may have it set too low and you might be just running amok and letting yourself get away with things because it's set too low. See, the Word of God sets the conscience. The Word of God, that to live with knowledge is what that word means. God steps in by the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God and He sets the with knowledge marker in us, not ourselves. And so these Old Testament blood sacrifices couldn't clean the conscience. You know why? Because it was a huge, all the emphasis was on our sin. We had to bring something for our sin. Now, I'm not saying that the system was bad. I'm just saying that there's now a better system, so to speak. I say the word system, quotation marks. And one of the words you find through the book of Hebrews is better. Over and over again, you see the word better, 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 because Christ is better. It's not that the old covenant was bad. Matter of fact, we talked about last time in Hebrews chapter number 8 that the problem with the old system wasn't God, it was us. We were the problem. We were the ones that could not do it. We, we signed up for the do or die, and we could not do it, so we have to die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, is what God said. And so God brings in this idea of blood. And when he goes through the book of Leviticus, your favorite book of the Bible to do your devotions out of, I know. I know you're expert on what a heave offering is, and that Justin can explain what that is after church as well. You're going to be busy this afternoon. That's the last time you wear shorts at church. <laughs> You're on the clock. <laughs> Leviticus 17, 11. I wrote this one in King James because it sounds like pow, pow in the King James, all right? He says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes an atonement for your soul. Have you ever asked yourself, and maybe... maybe You've already got it figured out, so you haven't. Have you ever asked yourself, why blood? Why? Why not just death? You know, why, not, why couldn't just the physical, why couldn't Jesus have just said, all right, it's time, I'm going to die for sin, and he just fall over dead? I'm serious, why? Why wasn't just death? Why is it blood? Why was Jesus' death so bloody? You ever thought, I mean, he was just absolutely eviscerated in blood and then hung naked on a cross. Here's a side thing about the cross too a lot of the we are steeped in these visualizations that have come from european culture and the religion of that time in which it's like you see all these people around the cross of jesus and it's like he's way up there somewhere you know what i mean he's like on this uh, why would they hang a 20-foot pole on the ground to crucify somebody on they didn't do it that way jesus was very low to the ground he was right there right there in the midst of everyone he died a bloody death Beaten, completely humiliated. Why blood? Well, one of the reasons, and I'm going to give you somewhat of my opinion and my take on this after studying, so you take it for what it's worth. I think the shedding of blood for sin shows just how serious God is about sin. Religions of the world have their own way of dealing with sin that usually revolve around some kind of physical act you do. But God's way of dealing with sin is the shedding of blood by a one that has never sinned. You know, this is this, this, one of the things that really just grabbed my attention about this whole idea of greasy grace, too. Have you ever heard that phrase? I hate it so much. 
I hate the phrase radical grace. I hate it. Because it's just, the, the grace we're talking about is just normal. All right? It's nothing, it's nothing crazy out there in left field. Only to the mindset that sees themselves capable of working their way into it does it seem crazy. That's the only time it seems crazy. When you read the New Testament, this is normal. Normal grace is God doing something for you and I that we are completely incapable of doing for ourselves. And so what does God do? God says, here's grace. Grace is absolute perfection dying in the place of absolute depravity when the one in which he died for didn't even ask for it. Nobody was standing around begging Jesus to die for them. Matter of fact, when Jesus said, I'm going to die, what did Peter do? He said, nope, not on my watch. It ain't going to happen. Matter of fact, I would die before you die. And Jesus is like, you don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, again, in my mind, maybe it's just because we tend to project our own personalities on some of these Bible characters, but I always, just humor me for a minute, I really want Jesus to be a little sarcastic. I'm sorry, I do. And when those things come up, I just want him to say, Peter, man, what are you talking about? Get out of here. You have no clue what you're saying. Matter of fact, he says, listen, you think you're going to die for me. He goes, but actually, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. And before you hear the rooster crow the third time, you're going to have denied me. But don't worry. Don't worry. I knew it was going to happen, and I prayed for you. You see, when we talk about blood sacrifice, we're talking about that kind of grace dying for those kind of sinners. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about God saying, hey, I've died. You guys go out and just party your guts out. It's fine. So like, we t- like was said in the, the worship this morning, we've been born again so we can have a life that we never could have beforehand. And so he says here that in verse 9, that conscience could not be cleared under the old covenant. Verse 10, he says, it was only concerned with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances opposed upon them until the time of Reformation. And that's not talking about, Reformation is not talking about the John Calvin, Jonathan Edwards time, all right? It's not what it's talking about. It's talking about which that time in which God would send Christ and change everything. It's interesting that he, in this particular translation, they use the word Reformation when it comes in reference to the death of Christ. And I kind of want to go on that just because I think it's interesting that we've hijacked that word, unfortunately. But I won't do it. You know, for thousands of years, under the system of the Old Covenant, God allowed the weight of sin, or excuse me, the weight of the law to reveal sin and pulverize those under it. Just absolutely decimate. Just crush down. It was the purpose shed blood of Christ that was necessary to take away the sin that crushed man. To take away. You know, under the old covenant, they were just covering it up. I mean, have you ever swept something under the rug? You know, we have that statement. Or we put a Band-Aid on something. Or we use a zip tie to fix it. Or we, hey, look, zip ties or duct tape fixed is fixed. You know what I'm talking about? And we do what we have to do. But God, knowing the sin-stained hallways of the heart of man, 
knowing how helpless we are, knowing how broken we were, did not leave man there under that system. In verse number 12, we see, let's look at verse number 11. Verse number 11, it says, But Christ come, came as a high priest of good things to come. So you can see how he's kind of making that, that compare the contrast. He says, With greater and a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He says, Not with the blood of goats and of calves, but with his own blood, he entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Romans 5 and verse, uh, let's think of it this way. When we talk about this idea of blood atonement, we're also looking at the fact that Christ's death was substitutionary in place of. And uh, over the years, I've had people ask me from time to time, and you may even thought it yourself, I've thought it, you know, why, why in the world would God condemn everybody over Adam's sin? I mean, why would he do that? I mean, that wasn't fair. We talk about things not being fair all the time. I mean, we live in America. We are obsessed with fairness. Obsessed with it to the point to where it is just sickening, all right? Because here's news, Internet world. Life ain't fair. There ain't nothing fair about it. There's nothing fair about the gospel. Nothing. It's not fair that Jesus did what he did. But it was just we're so obsessed with, never mind, you're going to get me off on a tangent. I see you trying to do it, all right? It's not going to happen. Yeah, stay focused, right? So why? Why one man? Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 5 when it comes to the blood death of Christ for one man's sin. As by one man's disobedient, many were made sinners. Why? So by the obedience of one, many will be made righteous. See, this is a wisdom of God in condemning the world in Adam. Because he can then justify in Christ. He can die once for all, for all sin, rather than dying for your sin and 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 your sin, and your sin individually. And the book of Hebrews talks about this. It, it, because they were saying it's not that he's offered once a year, because then he would have to have died often. But he came once by the putting away of sin. And I love that phrase the book of Hebrews uses, the putting away of sin. Christ stood as Adam, so we might stand, excuse me, read it again. Christ stood as Adam before God, so we might stand as Christ before the Father. And you know, one of the most, one of the darkest and most rank lies born out of hell is that Jesus Christ needs you and I as your, his personal assistant in order to take care of sin. It's one of, see, we think, of, we think we've got a list of terrible things, don't we? And we say, oh, man, this one's horrible. And, yeah, it has horrible consequences, don't get me wrong. And we say, well, this one's bad, you know. And we think of, like, unrighteousness as, like, this, you know, massive, you know, mean guy walking up to this fragile old lady in a wheelchair and just kicking her down some stairs. You know, that's what we think of like the embodiment of evil is, you know. No, we don't. I know you well enough to know you think that. And, you know, we have these pictures in our mind of these dark, dark things, right? But when Jesus stepped into a dark world, who did he rebuke more? He, he put his arm around those in darkness and pointed his fingers at those that proclaimed that they were in the light because he knew what, what he knew what doubly condemned man. 
doubly. Why do I say that? Because that's not even a word, but I made it up. You're welcome. And why is it a word? Thank you very much, my human encyclopedia. But uh, <laughs> remember what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, you encompass sea and earth. You go around the world. And when you make somebody, what are you making? Twice, twofold the child of hell. And that's what religion does, is it makes people twice, two times the child of hell. Because it tells, they, it, religion looks at an individual and says, you have a chance by your own merit to make this happen. You've got the opportunity. You know what? And you're kind of doing pretty good. You're not doing too bad. You read a chapter a day to keep the devil away. You know, you, you tithe 10% on the, on, to the cent. 10%. Did Jesus not address that as well? He said, you tithe according to the herbs in your windowsill. And then you overlook justice and mercy and faith. Give me a break, people. I remember one of the worst things I ever did was count money at a church. That, it, was, it was terrible. Because it's like some of the... And I'm not slamming anybody because I don't even believe in tithing. I, that's not even my thing. It's sure it's not yours. But it was interesting when I would work with other guys in ministry... And we would, you know, giving or so would come up. I mean, if they got paid $1,186.13, it was time point one zero equals, and they would write checks. They wouldn't even round up. They'd be like, here's a check for $232.46. Now, I'm not condemning you if you do that. I just thought it was funny for some reason. I'm like, you just couldn't round up to the nearest whole dollar? It made us count a lot easier, you know. We just go straight zeros, make it, please, just go straight to the zero. Even if it's back one, I don't care. Just make it zero at the end. It'll make balance in the books around here so much easier. And I'm not condemning you if you do that. My point being here is this, is that when we have a legalistic type of a mindset, that's the way we see all spiritual things. Even the death of Christ, we'll see it that way. As this minute thing that we feel like we have some kind of control somewhere in. So, let me turn the page because I wrote this at 4.30 this morning, so I don't trust my memory. Or 5.30, excuse me. Look down at uh, verse number 4. Let's read verse number 13. All right, let's read verse number 13. It says, For if the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, and you say, well, what does that mean? Again, Justin will answer that question. And the sprinkling, the unclean, and I get this, if all those things sanctify for the purifying of the flesh, the body, the physical, under the old covenant, how much more shall the blood of Christ, and I like how it says this, who through the eternal spirit, hashtag trinity, Offer himself without spot. Who did Christ offer himself to? Get that. What does it say? It says God. Now, that, that, is, that right there can entail like a 27-part sermon series right there. Anyway, I'm getting distracted again. To God. Notice what he says. Clean or cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death... For the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. What's the Bible telling us here? The Bible is telling us here that not only is the death of Christ substitutionary, but it's sanitizing, if I can use that word, because it rhymes with my first point, okay? And if it rhymes, it's biblical. That was a joke, kind of. The word purge here that he uses... 
uh, in the Greek language. And bear with me, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole that could be this illustration, so just use your own somewhat of imagination here. But it is the word that means catharize. It is literally a letter-for-letter movement from the Greek to the English language is where we get the word catharize from. And why is that done in the medical world? Well, it's to remove infection or it's to prevent infection, is it not? And so what does the Bible say here? The Bible's saying that the blood death of Christ catharizes the conscience, removes that thing that causes its problems and places the conscience of man in right standing with God. And it's interesting to me how often we struggle with our consciences. We struggle with them all the time, don't we? And I can tell you how you struggle with your conscience. When you sin, you feel like you have to do something good to one-up it after that. that. We all do that, don't we? We'll do something that we... Ne- we'll either do it on accident or purpose, it's regardless of what it is. Not irregardless, learn that last Wednesday night. Boom, not a word. So uh, regardless of what it is... We will try to, we got to balance the scales all the time, don't we? We got to balance them. Look, there is no balancing of scales. Grace didn't come to balance the scale. Grace came and took the scale and threw it out the window, and then Jesus said, I'm the new scale. That's what it happened. So our consciences are cleared, and that we don't live with this conscious self awareness, a constant crippling, always self-aware of everything about you that's not right. Now, I'm not saying ignore things. What I'm saying is, though, is that your standing before God has nothing to do with how well you know how bad you are. Any more than it has to know with what you know about yourself that you feel like is good. Both of those things are irrelevant. What's relevant is the blood death of Christ. And that when he came, he came to cleanse and to sanitize our position before him. And in verse number 23, and i got to hurry this up because there's people in children's church. And you know my thoughts on that. Your kids are great. They are. They really are. I'm all, when, they, when I have children's church, I promise you I will give them all the things you don't want them to have. And you cannot stop me. <laughs> I will hype your kids up on so much candy and give them toys that can put their eyes out. It is going to be amazing. So, especially when I do Fistful Sunday, they love that one. Just let them go in there and just grab as much as they can out of the candy box. They feel like kings, you know. It's great. Now, I'm not going to let my kids do that, but I'll let yours do it. So, (laughs) verse number 23, let's jump down here. Not that anything in verses 16 through 22 are not relevant. We really already discussed that last time that I spoke, so I don't want to go over it again. In verse 23, he says, Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these, all the things that they did, all the things that Christ did. Uh, Excuse me. uh, But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. Verse 24. For Christ has not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true... And let me just say this real quick. Everything that God told Moses to build under the old covenant was the very thing that was standing, that's standing in heaven. When Moses, he told Moses to build it this way and make it look that way and use this stuff and do it that way, it is a copy of the tabernacle that was in heaven. So, 
these sacrifices, verse 24, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now get this, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, what I want to get to about this, and we're going to finish these verses in just a minute, is this. The blood of Jesus Christ, because he shed blood and he has forgiven and removed our sin and purified us, one of the biggest misnomers about the mediating work of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is in heaven standing between you and God who has a heat-seeking missile on your chest just waiting to blow your head off every time you sin. That is the idea that's given. When we say that Jesus is a mediator, he's not somebody that's running up to God, begging God not to take you out. That's not what's happening. He's not reminding God every time you sin that he's forgiven you. You've heard that preached in churches probably most of your life. And it is absolutely, unequivocally, without one reservation in my mind, untrue in every way. When Jesus being in heaven, in verse number 24, it says that he appears in the presence of God for us. He isn't a lawyer begging for your destruction to be stayed. He is a monument to the fact that your forgiveness has been acquired. There's a huge difference between those two things. Jesus isn't up there reminding God how forgiven you are. When God sees all of us, he sees us in Christ as a reality. We are seated in the heavenlies with them. It's not like he's putting on these little glasses and he's like, oh, everybody's going to hell. No, they're not now. You know, that's not the way that that works. And I hate to be mocking of it, but it's getting to the point to where people are living and such, they're all trapped up. And somebody, I mean, we've got to say something about these things. Not because we're interested in making somebody look foolish, but because we're interested in those that have been set free being freed indeed. In verse number, number I've got to finish with this, verse 25. Not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundations of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put, I love that phrase, talked about already, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ. See, that is a comparative statement. We read that verse number 26 all the time to people. It's appointed unto man once to die. And there is a comma there for a reason. All right? Because English is confusing. No, but the fault continues. He says, but after this the judgment, verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those that eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from from sin for salvation. Let's understand this. When Christ returns, he's not trying to jump out of a spiritual closet to catch you. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that preached. That's Jesus is waiting to jump out and say, boo, I caught you, you know. Come on up here so we can talk about how bad you've been for the last 35 years, you know. That's not what this talk. When Jesus Christ returns, you know why he returns without sin? Because sin's already been taken care of. I'm not saying there's not consequences to sin. I'm not saying that sin won't hurt you. I'm not saying that sin doesn't... Sin, listen, sin is so insidious that not only does it cause you physical problems, it will cause you mental problems, emotional issues, relational issues... It, it just it will consume everything around you eventually. It will happen. 
It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. It's like owning a motorcycle. You're going to get hurt. It's just a matter of when you're going to get hurt. Sin's the same way. It's going to take up. I'm not saying any of those things are true, but what I'm saying is this, is why sin might change the way that we think about other people and the way we think about God. The, aton- the shed blood of Jesus Christ does, puts us in a position where God doesn't change the way he thinks about us and about how he's going to interact with us. If you had something that you paid for, would you just let it rot and tear itself up? I hope not. <laughs> Maybe that was a bad question because we kind of do that. See, Christ has purchased you with his blood. He is, he is more committed to you than you could ever be committed to him. He's got more skin in this game, if we can put it that way, than you and I could even possibly. We don't, we don't even have an option. We don't even have an in. There's no way for us to buy into this in any way. We have nothing. We're destitute without Christ. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed that gains these things for you and I, that takes away sin. If you don't know Christ, I hopefully today the Holy Spirit of God said something in your heart that only he could say to convince you of your need for Christ. And I could give you a thousand arguments for it, make them even hopefully somewhat logical. But unless the Holy Spirit of God says you, that's, that's what makes the difference. And if you're a believer here and you've been struggling with some of these things, understand that we're not trying to, and if it came across wrong, we're not trying to like come down on you about these things. We want you to be free of the things that are tripping you up. That's all we want. We got no other goal other than that. So if you're struggling with some things or some of these concepts are new to you, in all seriousness, myself, Justin, be more than happy, or you know, Andrew, anybody in here that uh, you feel comfortable with. Go, we get the, let's get these things settled. Let's pray, all right? Father, thank you so much for Christ. Thank you for the blood. Uh, thank you for uh, what it is that you've done for us and that, that you have purged us and taken sin away. And Lord, you seek to live your life through us so that we, our experience and the truth of what you've done can match up more and more and more on a daily basis. So we're, we're thankful that you do that, and we're thankful that we get to be in on it. In Jesus' name, amen.